I'll start with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump in. We'll start on page 11. Um, I'm going to try to keep the pacing moving, so make sure if, if I cover something quickly or you didn't catch it, uh, it's hard for me because I enjoy talking through all of it, so I tend to slow down, but I'm going to try to do my best to keep us rolling. So happy Mother's Day to you moms. Thankful for the ministry of motherhood and caring for your children within your home. I know for me, I'm very thankful for my mom and thankful for my uh, children's mother as well. So it's hopefully in the church, we are reproducing godly women who will also be good moms. So we want to pray for the Lord to keep using that grace in the homes of our church family. And even in our, I mean, I think one of the sanctifying graces in the world is good mothers. Um, a culture without good women is a crass, rough, violent culture. And so we should be praying that there be good moms, good uh, leadership from mothers in their homes. So let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for uh, the gift of grace that we have through Jesus Christ in the form of mothers who serve as gracious influences in the homes to train young men and women to love you, to know you, and to walk with your son. I ask that you would strengthen uh, the ladies in our church, uh, mothers, whether they have children at home or whether they're grandmothers and are able to both disciple their own children as well as their grandchildren. Uh, Lord, we ask that you'd strengthen the, those mothers, whether they have infants or whether they're maybe prospective mothers, that you'd be training young women to be good and godly mothers. Uh, Lord, we're thankful for these things. We're thankful for homes that you've given to us. We thank you for the dynamics of marriage through which you secure a good uh, home for our children. We ask that you would help us as a church family to minister to uh, the, the women among us who serve and care for their children. Uh, Lord, help us to guard them uh, from the influences that would pull them away from their children or would somehow act as though uh, mothering is a substandard calling in life. Uh, Lord, help us to honor what you honor and to reflect that care for mothers in our homes. We also ask this morning, Lord, for a rich grace of your help. Uh, we need to understand your word and your program of caring for your creation. So we ask that you would give us insight into uh, the scripture's presentation of how you've moved and been gracious throughout human history. Lord, help us to come to the text as those who are humble and sit under it, not those who inspect it as judges over it. And I ask that your Holy Spirit would shape us to look more like Jesus Christ this morning. And then even in our worship service as we pray and sing and listen to the scriptures being read. And then as we turn our attention to Romans, I ask that you would show us how amazing and incredible your love is. That that might be something that is reproduced uh, within our lives towards others, but also secures for us uh, a confidence and a hope that salvation is eternally ours because of your undying um, and eternal love for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. Teach us this morning, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to jump in on page 11. If you don't have the notes, grab those. I realize we, we, we have a little bit of a, a extra note printing because they don't always cover all the notes we print out. So I'm always kind of feeling that tension. So make sure uh, if you try to bring back your notes, then I can reduce the printing a little bit. Um, Try not to make things too complicated, though. So, anyways, page 11. Looking at the dispensation of the law, 
Um, and really, by the way, dispensation just means kind of a unique way of God managing the world that we live in or the people uh, that, that are in that world. So we talk about a dispensation. It's not, ironically enough, a particular term to dispensationalism. It's a regular term that, that describes uh, a, a management from God over people. We use it as a system to describe a way in which we understand God to have moved throughout human history. So, uh, law to Moses, or excuse me, the law of Moses to the law of Christ is, is kind of a, a way of thinking of it. Here's the revelation then, as Egypt is, or as, as Israel is coming out of Egypt, God establishes the formation of Israel through that wandering of the wilderness. He takes the nation to Sinai and then gives them what? What does he give them on Sinai? We might call it the law. Uh, last week I ended, and I, I kind of leaped ahead a little bit. If you look on page 12, it, the Mosaic law is actually a what? It's a covenant. And by covenant, we're, we're saying, saying it's, a, it's a brokered agreement between two parties. And when I say brokered, I mean in the sense that uh, this is objective, there's statements, there's agreement, there's two parties involved knowingly. Uh, you know, it's not like Israel stumbled into a peace treaty with God and says, wait, when did this happen? They all know that this is covenant language that God is using. They agree together. God agrees with them. And, and it's fairly standard etiquette in terms of what's going on in the law. This is in, the, in that age. We miss it maybe but nationality, uh, uh, national identity and nationalities were not as much important as like city-states. So like when Israel comes in, they don't necessarily do battle against the nation of Canaan. Who do they do battle against? Right, they come to Jericho. What does AI do when Jericho is getting surrounded and destroyed? Nothing. It's like, oh man, glad we're not Jericho. <laughs> then Israel turns towards AI, now, at some point, you have a coalition of five kings. What are those kings kings over? Basically, city-states. So you have kind of this me metropolitan area with like kind of fortress walls around the city over which you have a king. That king governs the people under him in a kind of a treaty negotiation arrangement. I'll be your king. I'll lead you. I'll use my armies to defend you. You'll be loyal to me, pay taxes to me, and we'll all get along. That, that kind of king subject, those are kind of our English words. In the ancient Near East, they would have said a suzerain, that's the king, vassal, his subject. And so there's kind of this like almost contractual agreement about how to relate to one another in, in, in the ancient Near East. So when God steps into Israel and says, Let's relate this way. He's using that language as king to subject. I will be your God and I will protect you. When militaries come against you, I'll defend you. And you, in turn, should be what? Obedient. And if you're obedient, I'll bless you. If you're disobedient, what happens? I'll curse you. God is using language that Israel would have been, and frankly, the whole ancient Near East area, that whole kind of what we think of Middle East, 
they all would have read uh, the Pentateuch, and when they would have gotten to like the Exodus 20 section where you have the Ten Commandments or Deuteronomy 6, where you have God reestablishing before they enter the Promised Land, and they, they would have read that, they would, have been, they would have said, oh, this is contract language. God, your king. In fact, we use the word theocracy. Why do we use the word theocracy? What does that mean? Right? Like, God is our monarch, is really the point. God is, God is our, our king. And so you have the establishment of this theocracy. So this is helpful for us as we look back, because I think most of the Old Testament being written under this dispensation means that as we read the Old Testament, we're looking into how God relates to whom? Mostly it's Israel, and it's in this covenantal relationship where God is relating to a group of people called Israel. Israel is an ethnic group of people, right? They're all genetically connected to whom? And Isaac, and particularly Jacob, right? Jacob's name is changed to Israel. So, so Israel is an ethnic group of people united as a nation now. So they're, they're not just like America has a very little ethnic like loyalty. Uh, in fact, in some ways, I grew up thinking of America and being told historically that we're called a melting pot because we're not ethnically, I don't want to say pure because that sounds like better, but that's how a Jewish person would have thought of it, right? Like there's an us-them we are ethnic Israel, we're God's people, and if you're not one of us, you're, you're the unclean Gentile. And, and so there's this real clear idea of ethnic solidarity, this, this ethnic unity, where they're all together under God's kingship. And they're a national identity. I think this is one of the ways in which covenant theology just, just misunderstands the Old Testament deliberately is they blur these distinctions between the church and Israel. We are not an ethnic group anymore. Ephesians 2 makes us so abundantly clear. What, what brings us together is not our ethnicity. It's not national politic. It's not um, borders, language, culture type stuff. What brings us together is Christ. What brought the Old Testament group of people together is, is national stuff. It's ethnicity. It's, it's a group of people who are from the same descent, who've been bound together, and then God covenants with them as an ethnic group of people. I think that's really helpful for us to keep in mind, because then we read the Old Testament, we're reading about God's people, but they're, they're defined differently than the church is defined. If you wanted to become part of Israel, what would you have to do? You'd have to immigrate. You wouldn't just go to the temple. If you went to the temple, you're still a Gentile. But you would, have to, you would actually have to proselytize and become part of Israel and bind yourself not only to the people, but to the God of the people. Whereas in the church, we, we don't have that, that governmental covenant guiding us. And this is very much a governmental covenant. It's also got spiritual applications to it too, doesn't it? All right, so let's look down at Revelation responsibility. Um, a couple points uh, that I have in the notes there on Revelation is, is, is intended to be this kind of um, long-term constitution that even governed the monarchy in Deuteronomy 17, 
and it is a particular covenant between the Lord and a nation. Responsibilities. The nation was to obey the law perfectly. Leviticus 18 makes that clear. Also personally. So blessings for those who keep the law, cursings for those who do not keep the law. And James and Galatians make it clear that everyone under the law did what? Did they do it perfectly or did they fail? They failed. Every one of them failed, except for Jesus. A person must express faith in God's redemptive promises. Habakkuk 2 makes this clear, but so does the rest of the Old Testament. I just highlight Habakkuk 2. It's one of the most quoted verses in the New Testament. The, the just shall live by faith. So while there's this national focus that God has in Old Testament Israel's time uh, from Moses to Christ, it's not as though salvation was national. Right? Salvation still had to be owned by personal repentance and faith in the future promise of God's redemptive lamb. So point four, personally Gentiles would still have been expected to follow the law written in their hearts. Capital punishment and governance were still uh, part of God's program for the whole world. And loyalty to God's promised seed was also expected. And then I think point five makes clear that individually people were to respond in faith to the redemptive promises given up to the point in which they lived. So I think you see that with both Rahab and Ruth. What makes Rahab and Ruth interesting and remind us of God's broad kindness to the world? They're Gentiles. They're not just Gentiles, they're Gentile women. Uh, the, the, here's where we, we really do the scriptures a disservice. If we were an ancient Near Eastern person and we read the Bible, we would be shocked by the honor and the care it gives to women. And, and I, think, I think we sometimes misunderstand that because in our culture, the way we treat women is different. And so we expect the Bible to be kind of this transcultural um, way of honoring women. Like somehow it culturally honors women the same way our culture honors women. It doesn't. It honors women, period. We've got to figure out how it does it, and we've got to translate it into our culture. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, so like if you want a good one where women were very protected are the divorce codes in the Old Testament. Men didn't care about divorce as much as women did. But women, in order to protect their integrity financially, as well as morally, divorce freed them up to be pure and independent agents from men. So if a man wanted to get rid of his wife and just kind of threw her to the curb and didn't divorce her, she would not be, at least by upright men, marryable. She didn't have much economic power or even legal power to own land or own property, and so you have a lady who can't own much, who can't do honest work, what is she going to be left to do? They would basically be left to beg or to be prostitutes. God commands the man to divorce his wife, not because he wants divorce. The point is he has to give her a letter divorcing her. He can't just throw her to the curb. Um, I've I think it is interesting, in that culture, men always kept the kids, too. So, like, you can imagine how hard that would be on a woman. In, in the ancient uh, lands, she could get sent out of the house. She would lose her economic freedom to work because no one would want to 
um, employ a dishonorable woman. She couldn't remarry a good man because no one wants to marry that type of woman. She couldn't have access to her children. And Scripture comes in and says, no, you can't do that to women. You've got to give them the freedom to, to have integrity when you set them aside in divorce. Again, the Bible is not necessarily advocating divorce. What it's doing is protecting women from an abusive situation and a culture that just chews them up if they get divorced or if they get thrown aside without divorce. Uh, I think we misunderstand how the Bible protects women in the Old Testament. And then we look back and on those cultural elements, we have a hard time translating them into our New Testament era. There's an upset on that. I just, every once in a while, I feel like we, we don't defend the Bible's honor of women well because we don't understand how badly the other cultures treated women. So coming to, to page 12 then, I've already talked about the, the idea of covenant. Uh, again, I think it's very, very helpful to understand covenant, and maybe I'll explain a little bit more in a second when we get to the church age and how we're different. Uh, page 12, failure. On the whole, all of mankind failed, particularly Israel failed. Um, as a nation, Israel from the very outset, struggle to remain holy. They fail to conquer and kill all the pagan inhabitants. God allows them to be taken from the land to which many of the blessings were tied. Ultimately, they murdered the Messiah through the Gentiles instead of submitting to him as their reigning king. I mean, obviously, that covers about 1,500 years of failure in history in that one paragraph. But if you were to read the Old Testament, and from the very outset with Moses, what do you see Israel doing? So there's like three major sins you see, I think, in the, the 40 years in the wilderness. Someone mentioned one. Complaining. Idol worship. They get sucked into paganism and they get sucked into sexual sin. All three of those, and those aren't always very distinct. Right? Sometimes they are, they're blended. You know, for instance, the golden calf incident, where they make this golden calf, they have a feast, they worship the golden calf, and the Bible says they play. That is probably not tiddlywinks or uno. Okay, that's a euphemism for, for a whole bunch of immorality going on. Uh, and that, that wasn't uncommon. Israel often, when they were dissatisfied and complaining about God, their, their hearts would turn to a different hope, and it leads them to a different morality. And not always necessarily in that sequence, but you see it really clearly in the golden calf incident. Um, just as a note, I think the Bible is clear they didn't worship the golden calf itself as much as that was a framework for, for worshiping Yahweh, which is really sinful. In other words, it was syncretistic, not purely idolatry. You guys tracking with what I'm saying there? In fact, we have um, ancient Near Eastern pictures of, I think it's uh, Baal, riding on a bull, almost like you would, like, standing on top of a bull like a surfboard. And, and the, they would use that as an idea of supremacy and power. And so perhaps the idea is Yahweh was powerful, but they used this golden calf to frame it. It's still idolatry, even though Yahweh was still kind of connected with it. All right, page 13, judgment. God judged Israel by having them wander in the wilderness. He judged them by having them overcome by enemies. Uh, the two divided kingdoms are part of God's judgment. Then the northern tribes are taken captive by Assyria, 
and Babylon takes the southern tribes uh, about 140 years later. It's, I mean, it reads as a fairly tragic story. I think we misunderstand some of the timeline stuff. How old is the U.S.? If we go 1776, we're, we're, we're nearing 250, right? Okay, just want to, you guys are all doing the math here. Israel comes in in 1440-ish to the land promised them. When did Saul first reign as king? Anyone? About 400 years later. So we, we have not even gotten through the time of the judges if we're walking through Israel's timeline. By the time David is king, it's about 1000 B.C., when he's king, I think uh, Solomon is 960, if I remember my dates kind of right. So you're looking at, at hundreds of years that are compressed. You know, the book of Judges is about 350 years long. And so we have a lot of history really condensed into some small sections of Scripture. And, and I think it caused us to be, we're already a little bit proud and judgmental when we read the Old Testament. But then you read it and you see all of their sins compressed into a few pages of, of text that you can read in an afternoon at a coffee shop. And you walk away being like, man, these guys are bums. Like, they're horrible. I'm glad I'm not like them. Please don't say that. <laughs> we are very much like them. It's, we should read it almost like biography. Like, like this is us. Um, grace. God gave people the law. The law is a very gracious thing. I think, again, we can read the Old Testament law through the lens of the ways the Pharisees misused it and think the law was a bad thing. Romans 7 says the law is a good thing. The law is good. The law is not a bad thing. Um, it was a gracious revelation of God. God still blesses Israel despite their sin. Have you read the book of Hosea? I mean, right? They're compared to a, a wife that's unfaithful, and yet, like God, Hosea keeps pursuing his wife. Um, number three, God gives more gracious covenants. So there are two covenants that are given during this era that one is prophetic, the new covenant. One is current, the Davidic covenant. Uh, four, God dwells among his people, and he goes before them. In the wilderness, he goes and and. He's with them in battle, the Bible says. Leviticus 26, God will walk among his people, um, and Israel becomes God's people, his firstborn. God treasures them. I think the New Testament indicates he still has plan for and concern over Israel. He still holds them as precious. He has not abandoned his people. I think Romans makes that really clear. God demonstrates his long-suffering and patience through Israel's repeated failures. There's a lot of grace in the Old Testament. It is not as though we talk about law versus grace. We're thinking grace versus non-grace. Really what we have is grace through the law and then grace in the church through Christ. Uh, it's not, not grace versus grace. Just really want to be clear on that. So fellowship and rule in this time of law. God began to permanently dwell with his people. Um, he began doing this as they exit Egypt, and he is a cloud and a pillar. I think you even see that like in Isaiah, where he's pictured as 
in his temple, and the temple is filled with smoke. Uh, that, that cloudy vapor is one of the ways God uses to express his presence to his people so that they can sense him, even though he's not sensible. Um, it, um, the tabernacle becomes God's center of religious worship and devotion. The temple could euphemistically be called the house of the Lord. Uh, fellowship with God centered around that temple, and it became the place where God was approached. Faith at this juncture incorporated the distinct provision and instructions of the Mosaic law regarding the sacrificial uh, festal system. In other words, I, I don't think you could express brute faith without having it done within the temple system. Right? Maybe, maybe something like this. If we met someone and said, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't want to go to church, I refuse to get baptized, and I won't read my Bible. What would you think in your mind? Then you're probably not a Christian. So if we meet a guy in the Old Testament who's like, yeah, I love the Lord, but I don't want to go to the temple. I hate Israel. I hope the nation is dead. And I don't ever want to read the Torah. We'd be like, you're not saved, right? Like, I mean, as much as faith is an internal thing, you've expressed externally an internal idea that indi indicates you're not saved. Rather, someone would have to, um, I think, sacrifice in faith, uh, generally speaking, within the framework of the Mosaic law during this time, or they, or they aren't saved because that's what valid faith is, right? It responds to God's word and is a living faith that transforms us. Um, so continue reading God's rule over his people was established through a mediator that God had chosen it begins with Moses then the judges finally those kings that we see in 1st and 2nd Samuel and following in the historical books there um, if God's will was uncertain God provided special revelation there was no separation of government from religion as Moses appointed religious personnel the establishment of a king was part of God's plan all along, and with the establishment of an unconditional covenant with David, God established this as a permanent form of God's kingdom. God's rule has progressed from the family unit to government to patriarchal and finally to kingdom on earth. So how does God govern people during the time of Israel, generally speaking through a theocracy? although that doesn't violate things like conscience that we still see as continuing principles. So God's promise to Abraham remains in effect, and the overarching principles of the law show that the character and uh, attributes that God desires to be in us, although they are not the authority for the church, the law of Christ is, they still show us how God's character is revealed in codified law. There are likely over 1,100 commands in the New Testament which are different than the Old Testament, and we are obligated to obey. My point is, is sometimes, again, contrasting the law and grace would make this age seem like a lawless era where we don't have stipulations and commands. Do we have commands? Like 1,100 of them. Do you guys remember the number of Old Testament? I guess it's kind of estimated. It's about 600. It's pretty clear we have a lot of expectations placed on us in the church age, and usually I think the right way to summarize those is the law of Christ. And I would say that those are in distinction to the Mosaic law. We don't obey the law of Moses. Period. Any questions? Okay. 
I'm offering. I feel like there should be questions. Right? Age of grace. You guys can always come back and ask questions later if you have some questions to ask. Yeah. Whom? Yes. I'm sorry. I can't see your hand at all. Why is, why is the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments, why, why should we not obey them as they are? Well, that's a great question. I'm glad someone asked. Because that law is given as a covenant to whom? That law is part of a covenant given to whom? To Israel, not to us. Yes. So let me, let me like pull apart some confusion you have there. And by confusion, I mean you've taken two things and fused them. Okay, so we are God's children, right? They are God's children. Are we, though, the same? And the answer is no, we are not. We are not a nationality of ethnically unified people who need or are given governance by God in a theocracy. Israel is. So we come to the New Testament and we see God separating us from that law. Like in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, we are not under the law. Not that I'm lawless, I'm still under God's law, the law of Christ, he says. So when we come to 1 Corinthians 9, he's really clear. So one of the ways I think it's helpful, Colleen, to think of this is there are two people groups who share some similar identity names, but they're different people. Like I have, how many children do I have? Six. They're all my children. I wasn't wondering. I was just wanting you guys to think about it for a second. I can call them child, but they don't, that doesn't mean that they're somehow having the same identity. I am very clear I have six of them. I don't just say, I mean, I could just say child to any one of the six and, and, and clearly identify that I'm speaking to one of them. But they're not the same person just because I have six of them that carry the title child. So can God have children that are distinct in identity, but still his children? He does this individually. I'm not you. And we're all each children. So the question is, could he do this also corporately? That is, could he have Israel be his children and then have a different group of people also be his children? The answer is yes. We should not blend those because they're distinct groups with distinct covenantal relationships. Are you with me so far? Correct. Yes. Yep. Right, but hold, hold on a second, Haley. The, the governing covenant for an Israelite was the law of Moses. And I want you to think about this for a second. You already don't obey the law of Moses in numerous ways that you're okay with. Unless you missed the Day of Atonement this last year, and you didn't go to Jerusalem and, and sacrifice a lamb for your family? I mean, did you think you're expected to? So you already intuitively get the fact that the covenant's been set aside. The, the problem is, and I'll, I'll get to this a little bit more as we go through the church age, there are, there are things that are similar because God hasn't changed. Right? Like, let's say immorality. Is sexual immorality sin in the Old Testament? Yes. Is it sin in the New Testament? Because it's tied to the character of God, and God hasn't changed. But he does change how he treats different 
groups. That's one of the points we're making with this, is he treated Noah differently than he treats Moses, differently than he treats people who are in the church age. And so what we're trying to do is I'm trying to drive a wedge of, a, of, of differentiating authority while there are a lot of similarities. And if we're not careful, we see those similarities and, and we intuitively do good work, but we don't know why we do good work. And so I'm trying to help you see why. The why is we do not obey the law at all as a law. We look at the law as a revelation of God and his character, but not as a binding law that governs us. Haley, did you have something to say? Yeah, because this is a point that's worth emphasizing, that's why I was really glad Colleen asked it, is let, let me give you two analogies that I think we see this in. Again, very intuitively, they're helpful. Um, if you are driving on a road between two states and you pass between state lines, does your authority change? In a lot of ways, it does. I mean, your federal government may not change, but... If I'm, if I'm driving across country, I don't, I don't research all the speed limits. You know, so I'm driving from Nebraska and I hit Iowa. Right? Welcome to Iowa. Great. Flat cornfields, here we come. So I enter into Iowa. And a Nebraska state trooper, 20 miles on the inside of the Iowa border, flicks on his lights. Does he have authority Generally speaking, and please, law enforcement people, don't go technical on me. We're just kind of generally talking here. I could see Mark already be like, ah, he's going to get this one wrong. Um, generally speaking, who governs the state laws in Iowa regarding speed? The Iowa law officers would. So Nebraska, really, the guy flicking on his lights has no authority, again, generally speaking, to do this, Right? Now, most of us, when we drive between state lines, we don't immediately go like, oh, good, now I'm not in Nebraska. I'm going to hit the gas pedal and go 120. Because the same principles that govern Nebraska's guidance for why it does speed laws are the same principles that would govern Iowa. They don't want people to die. They want you to drive at a safe speed in which you can react reasonably to things like deer crossing the road or humans. Right? They, they, they want safety. So generally the principles are going to be the same, but they might vary it a little bit, right? Five, ten degrees might, might change. Okay, so we're, we're in the church age, and we are no longer in Nebraska, right? But the God who governs it is the same God, and he's going to have the same ethos, the same, the same morality and ethics governing it. So there's going to be a lot of things that are similar, but you're not in Nebraska, and so we don't obey Nebraska laws because we're not there anymore. We're now in a new age of the church, and we need to understand what God expects from his church people. All right? D does that help at all in understanding, Colleen? So what happens like with the Ten Commandments per se? I don't think we have to obey any of the Ten Commandments given to Israel because they're given to Israel, but nine of them are repeated in the New Testament. 
So again, I look at Nebraska's laws, and I see a list of 10, and they all say the state of Nebraska requires these things. Now I'm in Iowa, and I'm like, oh, Iowa has nine of them. Like, they're the exact same expectations. Which one isn't repeated in the New Testament? The Sabbath day is not repeated in the New Testament. So, yes, Matt, you had a follow-up question? Wait, wait, did you actually ask a question there? Are they still part of the Mosaic Covenant? Is that what you asked? No, they're not. No, that covenant's been set aside in Christ. Correct. It's been totally set aside in Christ. I, so, I, maybe I didn't say it in here. The Mosaic Covenant's conditional. My understanding is it's set aside. So Israel's still a national identity, but they're no longer covenanted as a theocracy with God. And that's been set aside in the age of the church. So I would say everyone coming in now is coming in as a church person, not as an Israeli or Jew or whatever. I'm sorry? Yes. I would also add that it was clearly God's program always to have the church, but set aside because of Israel. I, I know there were more questions coming. Right. Yeah, he's actually a really helpful one because he says, I'm not under the law in 1 Corinthians 9. And as someone who was a Pharisee of Pharisees, according to his own words, says, I'm not under any more. So that's a helpful clarification, Jeremy. We're not to that dispensation yet, but let me, let me, I, I think there's clearly going to be more revelation. So no, if, if there is some kind of revitalization of the kind of Mosaic code, it will be a full-on revitalization because I don't think you could have the Mosaic code reinstated because what was promissory then is no longer a promise but fulfilled. So you might have, instead of a future kind of faith, faith sacrifice, at, at best you would have a memorial type of sacrifice, maybe something analogous to our Lord's Supper, where we look with memorial eyes of faith back. They would have looked with faith-filled eyes of hope to the future. So you might see something like that, but I think that would require a whole new code. For one, we have a new priestly system, right? Christ is our priest. We no longer have the... Um, the temple priesthood, the way it was then, the, the curtains torn. So I, I, think, I think I would not say we're going to have a recovery of the law of Moses. At, at best, it would be like a revitalization from the ground up, kind of maybe using that same framework but a different code based on Christ. That, that, and I, again, I'm somewhat conjecture, but Ezekiel has sacrifices returning. Um, Hebrews though, says we're in a new covenant, so we have a new priesthood. We have a living priest who no longer does any more sacrifices because they're not needed. So, I mean, I think there's a sense in which those sacrifices are not to expiate sins. They're, they're a memorial of the expiation of Christ that is a once-for-all sacrifice. So, again, I'm just trying to tease that out. It's, it's challenging stuff because, I mean, that's one of the grind points a covenantal person would point to is the sacrifices of Ezekiel and the temple and the millennium don't make sense. But then again, we have no problem memorializing the sacrifice in the Lord's Supper, and that's probably how I would 
see the best framework coming. All right. Off into the ditch and hopefully back on the road now. Speaking of driving metaphors. Um, let, let, me, let, me use, let me use an example as we, as we leave that and move forward. Just thinking through one of the ways the Old Testament, I think, can be a real useful tool for us. Uh, one of the ways I have learned about, uh, let's just say, um, being a good dad or being a good mom is the example of my parents. Uh, so I, I do not have the same identical relationships. Like, I am not John Brock with children named Lee, Brian, Mark. I'm a different man, but I learned a lot about parenting from my dad, about what it looks like, about how he fulfills his responsibilities, maybe ways he struggled and didn't do well. We look back at the Old Testament, I think we need to be careful that we don't displace Israel as though we're them, but we can look back and see how they responded to God, good and bad, see how they interacted with God and how God was pleased with them and how they responded by faith. We can learn a ton about how we should relate to God. But we should not think we're them. Right? Like, uh, to go back to my dad, he had covenant obligations and still has them to my mom. I don't. Not like that. I have a relationship to my mom as a son. And so I think we, we can learn a lot about what life looks like by looking at, at good examples. And I think we look at Israel and we see how people should relate to God in a lot of ways. But then we've got to translate that to us because we're different. We're not them. We can't just displace them and say, oh, we're Israel. So, all right, page 14. Let me just kind of enter into this gateway here, and then we got to end. So we have this uh, new age from Pentecost to the second coming. Although all heirs of God's rule have received grace, this dispensation has received the title grace, um, because this is a New Testament emphasis. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Paul also says that he has a stewardship of God's grace. So again, please don't think that we're in the era of grace because it didn't happen before. We're not. We're in the era of grace because Paul seems to emphasize it as a descriptor of this era. Uh, so the new revelation. Namely, Jesus Christ, Hebrews 1, says he's the exact imprint of God's nature, uh, number two, then, New Testament serves as a charter document for those who desire to be forgiven and rescued from their sin. So in contrast to the Pentateuch, the New Testament is ours, right? Those first five books is kind of the charter document for Israel. The New Testament is our charter document. Uh, Jesus began a new and living way to God through his once-for-all sacrifice. The New Testament reveals the birth, life, death, resurrection of Jesus as the fulfillment of the promises to Eve, Abraham, and David. Jesus is the final provision for God and man to be reconciled in fellowship. The New Testament promises the return of Jesus Christ in glory. The New Testament begins a new body called the church that constitutes a new group through which God is working during this present age. Here's a definition of the church. The church includes all true believers from Pentecost until the rapture, whether they are in heaven or on earth. The universal church encompasses all believers during this era, regardless of geography or death. Spirit baptism is a unique work of the Holy Spirit, whereby he places a person into Christ's body, the church, at the moment of salvation. The local church is the visible expression of Christ's body. So, let me just point out on number three, something that has implication for us. Crossway is not 
the church in the sense of universal church, but we express it. So like, for instance, membership in Crossway or discipline from it represents membership in the universal church or expulsion from it. So if we were to remove someone from membership, we would see that as membership from all of God's church globally, indefinitely until there's been repentance. Right? This is not like McDonald's where we kick someone out and they can go down the street and go into another one. We are, we are suggesting that every local church is an expression of the whole. Um, I, I, think, I think theologically, systematic guys get it. Local church people don't often hear that. And by that I mean, we don't do a good job as pastors of teaching people that while we're not the whole universal church, we express it. So when we gather to hear the ministry of the word, we can say something like, the church is gathering. And by that, we don't mean crossway, the church is gathering. We mean that we are a gathering of God's church, period. That's, I mean, I think that's heavy and glorious. It also means that we have all the gifted people that God wants us to have. Right, like we're not lacking something that we need to have. We are Christ's body with all of the body parts he wants here right now. And so if the Lord removes someone from us and puts them in another church, I mean, it's not like we're an expression of half the body, like we're the right thigh and left foot and an eyeball. Like, we are the body with all of the constituted parts that it needs to do work in church well. Okay, so the historical church, it's a visible expression of the body through all the earth whose members are presently alive. And the composition, the church is formed in Acts 2, increases as Jesus adds people to the church through spirit baptism, so that Jews and Gentiles are united into one cohesive unit called the church. I would add, it's a mystery in the Old Testament, so mystery means it was not revealed in the Old Testament. You will not see revelation about the church in the Old Testament unless you're doing exegesis wrong. Responsibility. Repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. More is demanded now than in the Old Testament. The Old Testament was nonspecific faith in God's future sacrifice, while the New Testament demands faith in a particular person named Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I think that's, that's just to be clear what we're saying here, maybe, uh, if you walk into a dark room and there's just a little bit of light, you act in the light given and you avoid the, the problems and you're able to navigate the room. Maybe you experience this if you wake up in the middle of the night to go help a child or to go to the restroom. Because there's enough light for you not to, like, die on your way to the bathroom. But there's not a whole lot of light. The Old Testament has some light pointing to a future messianic hope. The New Testament turns out that light, and you must respond to the light given. And now that light's really clear. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. He lived, died, and rose again according to the Scriptures. You have to believe that. I think you really clearly have to believe in the triune God of the Bible. You, can't, you cannot be the Old Testament monotheist anymore. You have to believe in the Son or you don't have life. Right? Jesus Christ is super clear. And I, I don't think there's been a change from the Old Testament, but the lights are on and you've got to believe what, what the lights reveal. Does that make sense? I think sometimes it's as though we think God took a left turn and now it's different. It's not. 
It's that he's revealed so much more, and faith always responds to what's revealed. All right, any questions on that? And then we'll kind of wrap things up today. Carol? No, they, no in the Old Testament, they had to believe, they had to believe what God had revealed in as much as he had turned the lights on. Okay, so in the Old Testament, did they know his name would be Jesus? So did they have to believe in the man named Jesus? No, they had to believe in the future Messiah hope. Does that make sense? As the lights come on, we see he is born in Nazareth from Mary through a virgin birth under the work and the miracle of the Holy Spirit giving this new life, this human nature to the divine Son of God. They, they did not know that in the Old Testament. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. The lights were dim. Were they told his name would be Jesus? Right, and that's why I'm using that a metaphor of, of light. Because we turn off the lights. It's not like the chairs disappear. As in, they're gone. They disappear in the sense that we can't see them. Right, so the, the, the promises in the Old Testament point to a reality that's a little bit hidden, but, but coming. Right? It's always God's plan uh, to, to have Jesus of Nazareth alive and, and paying for our sins through his death and raised again. But we didn't know all of that if we were Old Testament saints. But we knew we had a sacrifice. We had a, a lamb that was innocent and blameless that we had to kill. And that was to project us forward into faith in a future lamb that would be innocent that would die for our sins. Does that make sense? I think that lamb was was a was basically a promise as much as God had revealed. So I, I do think that grows, right? In the Old Testament, Jeremy? that help? And that's kind of what I mean about the lights, like the like, almost like a dimmer switch lights coming on, is that whatever, whatever wattage of light is in there, what's being revealed must be believed. You can't be rejecting God's word or be faithless towards it. You must be believing in the promises that are coming in, to which salvation's anchored. So Dave, did you have another question on that? And I, would, I, I think sometimes we can get too particular in the doctrine of what we believe sometimes. I'm going to be careful how I say that. What saves you? Who's our Savior? Not your faith. Okay, so, so sometimes we can get so focused on content. 
content is actually what, it, it's, it's the things we know about God around which we, we, we hold, like with which we hold him, right? Like God says he will save us this way, and we believe he will. That's what we believe. He is the one that's the object of our faith. It is his arm that rescues and saves. And I think sometimes, you know, for people who are simple, they don't always understand all that God has revealed, but they trust simply in a powerful God. And, and so I, I want to be careful that we don't have this idea that you have to have a graduate degree in theology to be saved, to have all of the content right. I do think there are some contours you can't not know. You can't, you can't not know about Jesus and be saved. I can say that positively. You must know about Jesus to be saved, right? So there is content you must know, but really the, the, the faith you have, again, faith, faith is not the powerful thing that saves. God is the Savior. And so we rest our faith in God's power to save. And we, we don't ever have a time in Scripture where that wasn't true. Right, so go back to Eve. She has this little tiny, we call it the proto-evangelium, the, the first gospel kind of thing, the baby gospel. Little, it's, it's in its embryo form. She must believe that God will save her through the, the content she has. The content she has is really minimal. Her faith isn't in the content, it's in God. And his con- the content is just him letting her know he plans to save through a son. She believes God. And his word and his promises revealed in those little words in Genesis 3.15. All right. Uh, let's go ahead and wrap it up for the day there. Um, I, I, I think there are times where when I go through the notes, you don't know the questions you should have. And so, Paul, did you have a question? Yes. 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 Okay. No. And, and here's what I would say for those who are sympathetic to that person is the Holy Spirit seems to effectively move people from Old Testament faith to New Testament faith in that New Testament era. I think you see that really clearly. I think it's Acts 20 where John's disciples that didn't know about the Spirit's baptism are baptized and get the Holy Spirit. Um, if you have true faith in the Old Testament, you have true faith in the New Testament. I don't think there's a person alive today who could have one without the other. That theoretical thing, I don't think would be true faith. I just... That's what? Well, I, I think actually the New Testament really clearly says if you have the Father, you have the Son, right? So I don't think you could have someone who has true faith in the Father of the Old Testament that leaves behind the Son of the New. I, I just think that's a, it's a theoretical question that I think would have only been viable in the New Testament bridge era between Jesus and Pentecost. And I think all of those people were successfully worked into the church by the Holy Spirit. So I, I, I think it's a, it's a little bit, and I, I know this is not the nature of the heart of the question, but can God build, can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? 
I think it's an impossibility that, that we're, we're, we're leaning towards. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. My, my guess is the spirit of the question wasn't, wasn't coming from a negative point of view as much as if progress of revelation historically meant that someone had to believe as much as they had access to in the Old Testament times, is that, is that type of thing still possible with someone who only has access to the Old Testament today? And, and that, that's where I think your, your point is right on. The, the ultimate answer is the Bible, the Bible tells us we have to be saved by trusting in Jesus. So, so the answer is no, that person is not saved unless they believe in Jesus. Does, are you guys tracking with me on that? I, I'm, just, I'm just not confident, I'm actually I'm pretty, pretty confident the opposite, that the theoretical possibility of a true faith in the Old Testament without knowing about or believing in the New Testament revelation of Jesus Christ is actually an impossibility. I just don't think that could happen. I don't think God would let that happen. I think true, true confidence in the Old Testament scriptures would lead someone into the New Testament scriptures. I don't think you could have one without the other. And I would just say that's probably an act. I would trust in God's providence that he would not let that happen as much as to say theoretically it couldn't. All right, off into the weeds again a little bit. Hopefully it's interesting for all of you to hear, hear those questions because I, I find them fascinating because there are kind of the what-if questions that, that, that we, we want to bring back to Scripture. And so... I think it's a good reminder for all of us to be very grateful for the revelation we have received. And there are people who have not heard about Jesus Christ, for which our church should pray and send missionaries and try to see the establishment of good, faithful churches. And so to the question of, what do you do with someone who only has the Old Testament? You send them missionaries that have the new, right? <laughs> right? So some of you should be praying about going. If you're not sure if you should be praying about going, talk to me. I will, I will tell you God's will for your life. All right? <laughs> Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful to be recipients of your kindness. We do not deserve to hold the precious scripture in our hands, to read from it truth that is more certain than our life, and through which we have the certainty of eternal life. We thank you so much for the gracious gift of Jesus Christ, who lived as one of us who took on human nature so that he could die for us and has been raised and given new life so that we can have the certainty that one day we too will experience resurrected life free from this sin that besets us, free from these struggles and the pains of this world. Father, would you please energize your church, the people in this room, to, to carry the burden of reaching lost people around us with the truth of Jesus Christ. And as we do that, Lord, we ask that you would honor your word by working through your Holy Spirit 
to redeem and save sinners. Lord, help us to be more like your son, we pray. Help us to understand your scripture better. Amen.